Welcome back to the podcast Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 87, Revelation, the Christian story retold. And in this episode, we are going to begin into chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. I intend to read the chapter in its entirety, although we will not have enough time in this week's episode to cover all of the verses in that chapter. But what we're going to do in this particular episode is I want to talk about C.S. Lewis. I want to talk about J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. I want to talk about the power of story and of myth and why it is that we tell each other stories, some in imaginative form, others in factual form, and how the Christian story is one that in true form captures all of the greatest stories. And I really think that Revelation 12 is doing us a tremendous service if we understand a few things about the way stories work, about why and how we tell them, and about ultimately what the word myth really means. And so today in this episode, which I'm very excited to get into, we're going to attempt to try to understand and to tackle a Christian myth. And I'll explain more about what I mean by myth as we get into the episode. So I'm excited for this week's talk. Let's just get right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 12 in its entirety. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. 
The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, as I shared in the introduction, we are now into chapter 12. And believe it or not, if you're counting chapters, this is now the beginning of the second half of the book. And just based on the nature of that particular chapter, it almost seems like we've entered into something new and you would be correct. And if you've been following along in Revelation during this series um, from the beginning or partway through, you will have noticed that depending upon where you are in the book, we are sometimes hearing about reality as it exists on the earth. And other times we are getting a glimpse of reality as it exists in the heavens. And one of the easiest ways to remember that was when we were reading the, the, the portions written to the seven churches in chapters two and three, we're very clearly talking about churches who are living here on the earth and the exhortation given to them or the rebuke given to them or the commendation given to them was fitting for their earthly situation. But then when we came to chapter four, particularly as it relates to a church who, when they look around them, might really wonder who is really on the throne. They were, John was, and therefore the churches through John were ushered up into a vision of a heavenly throne where the one seated on the throne is perfectly at rest and perfectly at peace, sharing that space with a slaughtered lamb. And so it's a heavenly vision to help understanding uh, the, the churches who are struggling on earth to remember that heavenly reality is supposed to dictate the way earthly reality works, not the other way around. And then we saw in chapter six that earthly chaos is taking place through these seals as they're being opened. But then in chapter seven, we're given a heavenly vision of what the saints who worship the lamb are actually able to do one day in the future, but also in some to some extent partially now. And so as we've worked our way through the book, it's helpful to remember, oh, we're now seeing reality from heaven's point of view. Oh, we're now seeing reality from earthly point of view. Where are we in the story? It's helpful as you work your way through the book. Well, Revelation 12 is another one of those times where we are now ushered back up into a heavenly reality. John tells us a great sign appeared in heaven. This is a description of some things that we've already had time to look at prior in the book. And as we walked through Revelation chapter 11, which I kept ramping up for you as the such a highlight point in the book, we were introduced with actually no explanation, this idea of a beast. And in fact, the beast, we don't even know what that is or who that is, but I had pushed forward for you, if you remember, into chapter 13, where we are given a little bit more of a clue about who this beast is. But before we can get there and before we can understand the workings of the beast, whoever and whatever that refers to, John needs us to understand that in the first half of the book of Revelation, in the first series of groups of of visions, ultimately, we were watching primarily the struggle among men. 
we were watching the struggle between believers and unbelievers. And as, as it ended in chapter 11 with us realizing that the unbelievers, when they see the powerful witness of the followers of the lamb, will break through the kingdom of this world and transform it into the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. But we see that the world, the beast, the unbelievers, those who dwell on the earth are attacking the church. But in Revelation 11, we saw that the church is avenged and it's protected and it's victorious and it's vindicated. Well, now the second group of visions, which begin here in Revelation 12, we are shown that the struggle that we watch taking place among men and on the earth actually has a much deeper background. There's a much deeper and richer reality going on that helps us explain what it is that we see on the earth. And so according to Revelation 12 and John's vision here, this is the outward manifestation of the devil's attack upon this male child that is birthed from a woman crying out in labor pains. The dragon attacks this man and repulsed, he directs all his fury against those who testify to this man. Well, Revelation 12 is doing, and I am sure you caught glimpses of this, even if you're curious about what the whole chapter means. Um, as you listened to it, it's probably not the first time you've heard Revelation 12 read, and yet we don't want to make the same mistake as I've tried to caution us, um, you know, periodically through this, this podcast about making too quick of a jump to allegory, wanting things to be one-to-one -one correlations. Instead, what we want to see is in terms of its mythical character, in terms of its um, structure and its story, we need to try to get beneath the surface of some of the details in order to hear the heart about what John is actually presenting us with. And so while I have not talked a whole lot on this podcast about C.S. Lewis, um, except for in my By the Book intro introductory episode, which I recorded several months ago, you did hear me say that it was C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia that actually got me at age 24, yes, that's post-college, to begin reading books. And Lewis captured my imagination, as I'm sure he has captured the imagination's of countless thousands, potentially millions um, over the years who've had the privilege of reading his work. Um, and some of you may know this, some of you may not, but C.S. Lewis was really good friends with J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, some people pronounce his name Tolkien. That may be the more appropriate way to pronounce it. I'm going to go with Tolkien just for the simplicity of the, of the matter for this episode anyway. But the two of them were great friends. And if you know J.R.R. Tolkien as the author of The Lord of the Rings, um, I love those books. I love those films. Uh, so does my whole family. Maybe you do as well. The Chronicles of Narnia. I, I prefer those books more than I do the movies. I don't think those movies, um, much justice was, was really done to those. And you might argue the same about The Lord of the Rings, and you may be right. But um, I want to bring Lewis in a little bit, as well as Tolkien, because both of these men were fascinated with myth. They were fascinated with story and narrative. And if you've watched or read uh, The Lord of the Rings or The Chronicles of Narnia, you can see themes that sort of overlap reality as we know it. And if you are a Christian 
watching or reading those stories, you are gripped at key points in the stories because things in those stories, maybe they're characters, maybe they're ideas, maybe they're scenes of darkness and blackness, they communicate reality to us, not in statements of fact, like something cognitive, but with our, with our emotions and our imaginations. And we get drawn into them because we're people made in the image of God and story is a part of our fabric. So I thought the best way to launch us into Revelation 12, and this episode may prove to be helpful for you as a whole in trying to grasp apocalyptic literature, because I quite frankly think apocalyptic is fairly mythical in its, in its thrust. I wanted to bring in a few things that Lewis says, as well as a few things that some um, uh, scholars of his, since he has um, since died in the early 60s, who bring to bear ways that Lewis and Tolkien together tended to talk about these kinds of things. Because the words they use, I want to borrow for our purposes in trying to understand Revelation 12. So here's Lewis uh, famously when he is actually distinguishing between what he calls a myth and an allegory. He wants to make sure that we're not mistaking the two, and I love what he says and want to share it with you here. Lewis says, my view would be that a good myth, which he defines as a story out of which ever varying meanings will grow for different readers and in different ages. So a good myth is a higher thing than an allegory into which one meaning has been put. Lewis goes on. Into an allegory, a man can put only what he already knows. In a myth, he puts what he does not yet know and could not come to know in any other way. Now, it may interest you to know that Lewis himself was fascinated with myths. He was fascinated with ancient mythology, Greek, Roman, Egyptian, Norse mythology was Lewis's personal favorite. And you may not know much about Norse mythology, but if you know anything about the Avengers today in Marvel Comics, the story of Thor is a Norse myth. It is a story embedded in a culture several hundred years prior to the coming of Jesus that stated what? It stated Thor, who is a god, more or less, was sent to the earth to learn humility when he acts in humility to save the people of the earth whose lives are being threatened by another deity who is angry with Thor for the position that Thor was granted that this deity was not, a.k.a. Loki. Thor stands in the midst of Loki's wrath in order to protect the people of the earth while, remember, being commissioned by um, you know, the, the, king of, the king of Asgard, Odin, not to, um, you know, be, be rooted in pride, but rather embrace humility. And when he does, when he stands in the gap to protect the people at the cost of his own life, it is that action that warrants him the worthiness to lay claim to the Thor, or to, the, to the hammer of Thor. That's a myth. 
We hear that story and we think, oh, that's an untrue story, but I want you to think about it in terms of concepts. A God comes to the earth, embodies humility, embraces death in order to protect those who are experiencing hatred from another God in order to um, take up his rightful claim to the throne because he demonstrated such perfect humility. Does that story sound familiar to the Christian narrative? It should, and that's what myth does. And Lewis wrote a fantastic article, which I couldn't recommend highly enough. It's an article called Myth Became Fact, and you can find it in Lewis's uh, book, God in the Dock, which is essays that he wrote on theology and ethics. But in this article, here's what he says. In the enjoyment of a great myth, we come nearest to experiencing as a concrete what can otherwise be understood only as an abstraction. Now, as myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact. The old myth of the dying God without ceasing to be myth comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. By becoming fact, it does not cease to be myth. That is the miracle. And I think Lewis is exactly right. He's grabbing this idea of myth. And when we hear myth today, we almost always hear something that is untrue not real, pretend, okay? Lewis is not using the word myth in that way. And Peter Shackle, who is a scholar of Lewis's, wrote a fantastic book called The Way Into Narnia, which is just a fun exploration of many of the themes that Lewis is just weaving seamlessly through those stories that you may or may not even pick up on as you read. But he also knows the world of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and the elves and the dwarves and the nymphs and all the things that take place there. And he wants us to understand what Lewis and Tolkien mean when they talk about myth. And so here's what Peter Shackle has to say, which I think is helpful, particularly if you know either the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings. Here's what he says. In the field of literature, myth usually does not mean a fictitious story or unscientific account, theory, belief, etc. Instead, to Lewis and Tolkien, myths deal with matters beyond and above everyday life concerning origins, endings, aspirations, purpose, and meaning in conceptions or narratives that appeal to the imagination and the emotions rather than the intellect. They are non-rational and non-intellectual, not irrational and anti-intellectual. Thus, Tolkien says that myth has a total unanalyzable effect. The experiences that myths generate are serious and awe-inspiring, conveying a sense of the numinous. Myths open huge vistas. They plumb depths of the emotions in the spirit. The sheer imaginativeness of such stories, like that of much poetry, adds to life, creates sensations we never had before, and enlarges our conception of possible experience. Myth conveys realities that are universal, and feel inevitable to the human heart or the spirit, enabling us not to think about them, but to taste them. 
Our temptation is to try to express in non-imaginative terms what a myth means instead of seizing the opportunity myth offers to taste a reality. Myth supplies not answers, but experience of a larger existence than we can know cognitively. Such an experience touches depths that the intellect cannot reach and conveys to children and adults alike the sense that this is not just true, but truth. Now, I don't know if you caught all of that, but I think Shackle is absolutely right. And I'm saddened to say that post-Enlightenment era, which all of us live in, we have lost the art of the imagination. We are skeptical of the imagination. Many of us do not know how to invite Jesus in to our imagination because we've relegated it to the non-historical, to the non-factual. That's not the point. The point is we are getting beneath the surface, these inevitabilities of the human heart or spirit, which enable us to not think about the realities, but to taste them, to experience them, to get inside them and to want to understand these worlds from a different perspective. God is not just a rational being. He is emotional. He is exciting. He is invigorating. And to get into a story where we can feel and experience these realities is ultimately the power of a story like Narnia. You know, it is not enough for you and I to read in a little paragraph paper about the theory of the atonement. Instead, if we get into a story which lets us feel what it was like for Edmund to betray Aslan onto the stone table. If we get to watch viscerally the white witch drive a knife into Aslan's side and to end his life, we cry with Susan and Lucy as they run up and hug Aslan. They're in tears. They're in agony. It hurts. That is myth. That is imagination. That is gripping us as human beings in our emotions and in our imaginations, not just in our intellect. And yes, the Christian position, the Christian faith is one that is meant to be experienced. It's one that is meant to be embraced imaginatively, emotionally, and cognitively. But my goodness, if we've not left out a central part by dropping off the imaginative and the emotional and going straight for the cognitive only, we're not just talking heads. We are bodies, we are chests, we are hearts, we are compassion, we are emotion. We have it all and we need to access it all. And so Lewis, in a fantastic sermon, and I'm sorry, I'm just rattling a bunch of things off, but these are just things that are, that are important to me and I think should be important to you. But Lewis preached in a beautiful sermon and recorded it in a book called The Weight of Glory, but the sermon itself is called The Weight of Glory. And he talks about this idea. He talks about why it is that we create these stories because we need to get to reality deeper than we can with just our heads. And here's what he says to us. God has given us the morning star already. You can go and enjoy the gift on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do we want? Ah, but we want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but the poets and mythologies know all about it. We do not merely want to see beauty, though. 
God knows, even though that is bounty enough. We want something else, which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That is why we have peopled air and earth and water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves that though we cannot, yet these projections can enjoy in themselves that beauty, grace, and power of which nature is the image. What Lewis is saying is there are just certain realities you can't experience. You can't understand fully unless you immerse yourselves in them. And so we as people have always created stories to allow ourselves to do that. And no matter what you personally think about myths or the imagination or the emotion, you and I always do this all the time, un, or not unconsciously, subconsciously. We always create narratives of which we see ourselves in a particular character in that narrative. And that narrative is how we help us help ourselves make sense of reality as we know it. We tell ourselves stories. Some of them get embellished over time, but the parts that get embellished and the parts that get forgotten are also central to the story. Who do we see? What do we see are the key elements in our story? And so of course, John is writing to a bunch of Christians wanting them to be captured by the heavenly reality and by the heavenly story and by the heavenly myth, right? Grasping us at the emotion and in the imagination, not just in the intellect. He wants to grip us with the story of all stories. He wants to retell us the Christian story, the Christian myth. Again, don't think myth like it's not real, not fictitious or unscientific account. No, 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 no. Myth, dealing with matters beyond and above everyday life concerning origins, endings, aspirations, purpose, and meaning in conceptions or narratives that appeal to the imagination and the emotions rather than the intellect. They are non-rational and non-intellectual, not irrational and anti-intellectual. Sadly, we're not great readers of literature um, in the West and particularly in the Christian West. I grew up in a context, and maybe you did too, that really did boil everything down straight to what are the facts? Give me the facts. I don't need anything else. But that is very, very unhelpful to being able to truly engage the person of Jesus with our whole selves. And so what John does is he tells us this myth. And his story revolves around three primary characters, a pregnant woman, the child she bears, and a great red dragon bent on destruction. Okay then, so if we keep in mind our definition of myth, this idea that is grasping for the emotions and the imagination, not just the intellect, and myth also not being limited to or even being equated with allegory, we're able to step back a little bit and to see themes that are sort of at work as we go through the beginning of this chapter. And so as I shared, we have these three characters, the woman, the child she bears, and a great red dragon who is bent on destruction. So the woman, 
Well, we've got some Old Testament grounds to see this woman as the larger messianic community of Israel. The woman of Revelation 12 is the community of Israel as it prepares to give birth to the Messiah. Numerous times in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a woman. That's significant. And you may even remember back in Genesis chapter 37, when Joseph has a dream that he shares with his brothers that they get very upset about and end up selling him to Midianite travelers to Egypt as a result. Let me read to you the section from Genesis 37. Tell me if it sounds at all similar to the vision that John has in Revelation chapter 12. Joseph said to his brothers, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now the words that they used to Joseph are interesting. Are you gonna reign over us? Are you gonna rule over us? Well, we know that the child of the woman that John describes in Revelation 12 is in fact someone who is going to rule but ever since we've read at the beginning of our podcast, in the beginning chapters of Genesis, the purpose for man was to rule. And yet as a result of sin, the way people now hear, are you going to rule over us? Joseph's brothers hear it the same way you and I do. We think that person is going to elevate himself to a position of prominence out of arrogance and out of presumption, and he's going to be a cruel taskmaster on the rest of the world. We know after reading that narrative, that is not what actually happens when Joseph is elevated to a place of rule, but his brothers don't know that. So let me go on. Joseph doesn't just have one dream that ticks his brothers off. He has another one, and I want you to listen to it. Joseph then dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, this is really interesting. John describes the sun, the moon, and 12 stars centering around this woman. Here in Genesis 37, when Joseph says that the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me, he is, according to his own father, who says to him, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? Jacob knows exactly what Joseph's dream means. And Joseph is the one claiming that the sun, his father, the moon, his mother, and the 11 stars, his 11 brothers, are going to bow down before him. This is a fascinating discussion, but this is the launching point of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. It is Jacob and his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, whose name was Jacob. Do you follow it? Now, if that's not proof enough, in Isaiah 26, 16 to 18, this is what we read. O Lord, in distress, they sought you. This is the Lord's people. They poured out in a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. 
We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. Okay, now this doesn't get any clearer in my mind. They're straight up calling the people of God, Israel, a woman writhing in her labor pains. Okay, this is exactly the scene John's describing. And why is he doing that? When Israel writhes in pain, they are attempting to generate the kind of fruit and the kind of blessing to the nations that the Lord's always wanted. But guess what happens when people who've chosen their own way go about trying to produce something great? What does Isaiah 26 say? We've given birth to wind. That's it. But when the Lord comes on his people and empowers them, what do they produce? They produce a child. Well, but then there's this dragon who is standing around waiting to do something. And so let's look at the dragon for just a second. Um, the dragon was a common symbol in the ancient Near East and Greek mythology representing chaos, disorder, and opposition to the divine. We looked at this in episode chapter four with Tiamat, this great sea creature, this sea monster who was a threat to all things good. And Marduk was hired by the, by the, the, the lesser gods to go and to attempt to slay her. And when he did, right, he brought order and peace to the creation. But what we looked at in that myth was that his means by which to bring about order and peace was through violence. And every culture in every age has celebrated a similar myth by believing that what you need to defeat a monster of chaos is a God who with, has a bigger stick, who can come in and squash you with his superior power. And Pharaoh embodied this in Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar embodied this in Babylon. Israel got sucked up into wanting to embody the same reality. But listen to the way Isaiah, several chapters, actually, I'm not sorry, I'm not, sorry, not several chapters earlier. The very next chapter in Isaiah, after talking about Israel giving birth to wind and being like a pregnant woman writhing and crying out in her pangs, the first verse of Isaiah 27 says this, in that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, <laughs> the dragon, this chaotic monster that wreaks terror on the earth. And in several verses after we read about Israel writhing in her labor pains, the Lord promises that he's going to come and slay Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent. In fact, we've seen this, Israel experienced this in Egypt. Listen to Ezekiel 32, verse two. Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt and say to him, you consider yourself a lion of the nations but you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet and foul their rivers. You are a monstrosity, Pharaoh. You are a monstrosity, Nebuchadnezzar. You beast like dragons. But again, John's painting this cosmic picture. He's painting this um, global perspective, this universal story that we all sense there's something out there that's creating chaos, that's disrupting the world. John is trying to describe it now to us in cosmic mythical language. Well, there's only one character left, and that is the child that this pregnant woman gives birth to, that the dragon is hoping to devour once she gives birth to him. And we're told that he is a child who is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. 
but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Well, in Psalm chapter 2, in talking about the coming Messiah, we read this in verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, this isn't even the first time in Revelation 12 that we've seen a reference to Psalm chapter 2, but this idea that you will rule them with a rod of iron, and we've talked about this before. The way most people think about a rod of iron is going to be an abusive, oppressive kind of rule. This is what Joseph's brothers thought he was going to do when his dreams told him that he was going to rule over his brothers. And yet, if you know the story in Genesis 37 to 50, you find out that when Joseph gets to a place of rule, he is kind, compassionate generous, and gracious with his brothers from his place of rulership. That is precisely what is going on with Jesus, which is why in Revelation 2, 26 and 27, to the church in Thyatira, we read these words, and we've read them already as we've gone through this letter. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. So we know as we read that if Jesus is going to share his rule with his people, the kind of rule he's going to share with them is the same kind of rule that he experiences. And the way he came about that rule, he's also going to share with his followers. We are watching it happen in this myth And shockingly enough, the way John rapidly tells the story, the dragon doesn't eat, Jesus's 33-year life on this earth isn't even mentioned in John's narrative because that's not the point of this particular narrative. The dragon wants to devour the child. He wants to destroy the child. He's been trying to destroy the child ever since the beginning. This has implications of Genesis chapter three in it. We've got a woman and a serpent And the serpent turns on the woman's offspring in Genesis 3.15 and is after her to constantly have enmity between those who follow her path and those who follow his. It's the same thing. And so the beauty and the power of what John is doing here reaches not just into the world of the Bible— and therefore primarily Jewish culture, which it does because we've got these references from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 27 and Genesis 37 and Ezekiel 32. But I also want you to realize that John reaches into Greek and Roman culture as well. And of course, he would want to do that for the simple fact that there are most likely people from Jewish heritage and from Greek heritage and maybe Roman heritage in the churches to whom John writes who would have already heard these kinds of narratives and stories being told by their own people and by their own culture, but also the fact that John is writing into a group of people who currently live in a Roman context where the Romans themselves tell each other stories about the greatness of the Roman Empire The people of God need to know what their Christian myth and their Christian story has to say in response to the Roman narrative and the Roman myth that everybody around them, some of their own people included, are telling the world about what's really real. 
And so I'm going to reference um, the book that I do quite regularly, actually, A Slaughtered Lamb by Gregory Stevenson, because he is helpful in pointing out a few of the myths that are showing up in the way John is telling this narrative. John is grabbing from multiple sources in trying to recast and retell the Christian story. One of them is the Greek Leto and Python myth. And it goes as follows. A woman, Leto, is pregnant with a child, Apollo. A red dragon, Python, pursues the woman in order to kill her child. Zeus rescues the woman and Poseidon protects her. And then the child, Apollo, defeats the dragon. Now that's odd if you picked up your Greek mythology book and you just relegated these myths, right, to the non-historical, to the non-scientific, they're fictional, blah, 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 they're not real. No, they're getting at things that are real. Because listen to the contrast in Revelation 12, right? A woman is pregnant with a child, Jesus. A red dragon, Satan, pursues the woman in order to kill her child. God rescues the woman and protects her, and the child defeats the dragon. Wait a minute. What John is doing, though, is he is pulling ideas from ancient myths, ancient stories, but he wants to make sure the way you understand the Christian myth is necessarily means you're going to apply your place in that story in the appropriate way. Because you can, and people still do, attempt to apply their victory, as you, if you will, in a Babylon style or in a Pharaoh style way. John wants to caution us against doing that. But he pulls from another one, and it's a fun word to say, gigantocomy. Um, I think if I've said that right, or gigantocomy. I'm stumbling through it myself, but it basically means the battle of the giants. And you may have heard this before. Um, it's the war in heaven. This story it basically is a heavenly battle between the gods, right? Athena and Apollo, etc., as the forces of goodness and order against the giants, sometimes called the titans, who were the representatives of evil and chaos. Well, listen to a brief example about this narrative, this myth. The gods fight a war in heaven against hybrid human, human dragons. These are the giants. The gods are victorious, and then the giants are cast out of heaven. Well, listen to the way Revelation 12, 7 to 9 describes that same story. Michael and his angels fight a war in heaven against the dragon and his angels. Michael and his angels are victorious. The dragon and his angels are cast out of heaven. So we've got this myth here, this story in a Greek culture, in a Roman culture, and you've even seen images in history books of certain powerful kings and powerful rulers who are standing with the moon under their feet, right? Or with the earth under their feet and showing their, their conquering and their ability to rule over these timeless realities that exist. It's a demonstration of power, and of course, we have to compare that to the way the Christian myth is being told. But part of the way that works is for us to go back into sections that we've seen before in the biblical narrative, one of the big ones of which is the Exodus. So listen to the way the Exodus narrative works. You know this story, so I'm just going to summarize it for you. Pharaoh, after letting the Israelites go, Pharaoh pursues after the Israelites God carries the Israelites on eagle's wings to the wilderness where they are protected. 
Pharaoh sends an army to overtake the Israelites and the sea opens and swallows the army. That's the myth. That's what happens. That's the actual way the narrative is told. Listen to what John describes in Revelation 12, 13 to 16. The dragon pursues after the woman. Not Pharaoh. Oh, but Pharaoh's called a dragon, called a serpent in Isaiah. Interesting. The woman is given eagle's wings to fly to the wilderness where she is protected. The dragon sends a river to overtake the woman and the earth opens and swallows the river. You see, this is why we don't make allegories out of these situations. What we're trying to do is we're trying to grasp imaginatively these big, like the earth coming to the aid of a woman. The woman who is the embodiment of the people of God giving birth to a child where a great red nasty dragon wants to devour him. But he's caught up to heaven and to the throne before the dragon has a chance to get to him. And then as we've spent several episodes looking at Genesis 3 and could probably spend several more, this is the final account that I think John has in mind when he's crafting this Christian narrative. Genesis 3, a serpent deceives Eve. The woman will give birth in pain. This is one of the curses leveled against the creation as a result of the fall. Pain in childbearing. There is to be enmity between the serpent and the woman and there is no enmity between the serpent. Oh, I'm sorry. And there is to be enmity between the serpent and the woman's offspring. Well, listen to the way Revelation 12 sums it up. A serpent deceives the whole world, not just the woman. The woman cries out in the pains of birth. The serpent seeks to kill the woman once he realizes he can't kill her child. And then the serpent goes off to make war on the woman's offspring. And according to Revelation 12, it says, Harest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I am going to come back to this narrative in a future episode because I want to tie together the remainder of some of the contents now that we've seen the overview, the sweeping narrative. But here's the bottom line. John is creating for us a heavenly view of reality to help us understand that the earthly battles we see happening all around us between people, ideologies, arguments, disagreements, fighting, you name it, has a deeper and more substantive root that goes beyond what you and I see here. It would not be a stretch to say at all that when Paul speaks in Ephesians 6 about the fact that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness over the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Paul is quite literally describing what John is describing in Revelation chapter 12. What you and I need to know is that people are not our enemy. There is a deeper reality at work. There is a deeper narrative at play. There is a deeper myth happening all the time of which the Christian story captures the essence of the greatest and most um, serious elements of all the myths, and it unites them in the person of Jesus to help explain everything. And so as I've already shared with you, whether you believe this or not is irrelevant. We all live by telling ourselves stories. 
We see ourselves as either the hero or the villain. We know this world. It grips us, not in the intellect, but in the emotions and in the imagination, which is why Lewis will go on to say in his article, Myth Became Fact, I suspect that men have sometimes derived more spiritual sustenance from myths they did not believe than from the religion they professed. To be truly Christian, we must both assent to the historical fact and also receive the myth, fact though it has become, with the same imaginative embrace which we accord to all myths. The one is hardly more necessary than the other. And if you know about Lewis's life in general, he was not converted to the Christian faith until his 30s. And one of the primary reasons he was not was because his heart and his imagination were captured by myths. He loved them. He loved the stories. He loved the imagination. He loved playtime. He loved pretend. But he wrote to his friend J.R.R. Tolkien telling him, everything I love in this world, I believe to be unreal. And everything the people in my church tell me is real, I find dull and boring. If I could find a worldview that would bring together the imaginative fun, the exciting, the adventure with the things that you tell me are factually true and real in this world, I would believe it in a heartbeat. And guess what happened several years later? J.R.R. Tolkien introduced C.S. Lewis to Jesus by helping him see that what he loves about the story what he loves about the myth, what he loves about the cosmic realities that he wants to taste and experience, that very reality actually happened in a person in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And in that moment, Lewis tells in one of his letters, was on the way to the zoo and he doesn't even know when it happened, but by the time they arrived in the car to the zoo, he was a Christian. When he got in the car at the beginning of that evening, he was not. The two came together for him and nothing has ever been the same for Lewis since. We have all been recipients of this fantastic night in Lewis's life where he brought together the imagination and the intellect, the non-historical and the non-rational into what we know as fact. They all converged in Lewis. And Lewis has then, as a result, been able to be a blessing and a gift to the world. That's what John wants to do with our Christian imaginations through teaching us Revelation 12. He wants us to see ourselves in the story. And we're going to look at that next time we tackle Revelation 12. I do want to let you know that next week I'm going to be on vacation. And I do intend to keep the podcast going, but I don't have the time to wrap up chapter 12 and to give it to you next week. So next week will be another by the book episode, one that I've already recorded. And that way can do that without any effort on my part so that I can just kick back and do nothing for an entire week, which I'm very excited about. So I love each of you. Thank you for those who've reached out and let me know good, bad, ugly, whatever's going on with you or how you've appreciated the podcast or questions that you have. Thank you to my supporters. 
Those of you who are supporting this podcast for 99 cents or 4.99 or 9.99 a month, just again, thank you. Every time I think about you, I'm just so grateful. Thank you for leaving me a rating or a review on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on. You guys are awesome. This is really, really exciting. I'm noticing new listeners on the podcast, large part due to those of you who have reposted these episodes and have encouraged friends and family to give it a listen. So thanks so much for your support. Go read some C.S. Lewis this week and be recaptured by the, the power of story or the power of myth. And um, I'll catch you next time. Have a great week.